Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. My book just out this September is Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally. It would seem almost delinquent if, for this podcast, I neglected to discuss the film Arrival, with a screenplay by Eric Heisserer, from a short story by Ted Chiang. Arrival is based on the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, which was developed most explicitly by Benjamin Lee Whorf, who actually was a fire inspector by day, but was a passionate amateur linguist. And the Sapir Whorf hypothesis speculates that aspects of our particular languages shape the way we think, the way we process the world, and you could extend that to culture. So the way, for example, the Native American language Hopi splits up the world in terms of its vocabulary, would influence how a Hopi person sees the world, whether a language has a subjunctive or how many past tenses a language has, would influence how you process things such as the hypothetical or degrees of the past. It's a very interesting idea. And now we have a major release movie that is actually founded on something that usually you only encounter in a class about linguistics or anthropology or at a coffee house somewhere. It's really neat. And as a lot of people have been asking me to weigh in about this movie, because one of my books, The Language Hoax, happened to be about it, I thought that I would actually do it today, especially because my verdict is not, as I think many people would think, a slam. I actually think it's pretty nifty that a major movie is addressing the Sapir Whorf hypothesis at all. I guess it's supposed to bother me that the screenplay implies that Whorf was completely right and that each language gives its speakers their own private acid trip, but it doesn't somehow. For one thing, it's supposed to be an alien language, and so that implies that it's somehow different. And really, to a linguist, what stands out as off about the movie is that the Amy Adams character focuses on the written language instead of the spoken one. Linguists think of writing as an approximation of language scratched onto pages. But, you know, it's it's almost inevitable that beyond linguists, people tend to think of language as writing because writing is so permanent and majestic and writing works better for a film, let's face it, and the writing that was designed for these aliens in the film by Martine Bertrand is beautiful. For this show, I think it'll be useful 
for me to indicate that the Sapir Wharf idea is true in itself, but to nowhere near the extent that the film implies. So, getting down to brass tacks. In Arrival, and I warn you that this would qualify as a spoiler if you don't want to know anything about the film and you haven't seen it yet, but it turns out that in the alien's language, time doesn't have a direction. That in their language, you perceive the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Now, you could say that that is their thought pattern, but the Sapir Wharf idea is that this would be reflected in their language and that maybe there would be a holistic relationship between language and thought and thought and language and language and thought. So, past, present, and future are all together. And you could see this as indicating some sort of cyclicity or holisticness or even roundness such that the writing in the movie is based on these beautiful circular patterns. You can't help but like that. The idea that time doesn't work in the linear, and you might even think of it as regimented fashion, that we Westerners think of time as occurring in. The past was before, the present is now, and the future is ahead, and it's all on a straight line. I remember learning about the Sapir Wharf hypothesis in college. I was learning about how the Hopi Native Americans have a cyclical sense of time. These indigenous cyclical senses of time was what Frederick Turner was referring to in this book called Beyond Geography. And here is the quote that I remember really getting me and thinking that, hmm, here I am with my mind actually expanding the way it's supposed to when you get this liberal arts university education. The quote. And the difference between such a world and the one we know seems largely attributable to Christianity's turn away from the timeless cycle of myth and nature and its insistence on rendering the Messiah into historical and thus entirely unique terms. Robbed in this way of old comforts and unable to feel reattached to the great events sealed off by subsequent history, the Christian West had to live onward, set its face resolutely forward in the hope of recovering in an apocalyptic future what it had once had in the past. The historical interpretation of Christian mythology thus became the very engine of history. That's the background to the idea that, for example, the Hopi language has no tense, doesn't indicate time in any particular way. So time is cyclical. This is a whole different way of perceiving reality. Benjamin Lee Worf was a good writer. It is said that he was a captivating speaker. He died young, and so we can't listen to him or see him. But you can see in pictures that he wasn't bad to look at. He had a way of grabbing people with his ideas. And here's a classic passage of his on the way language would relate to something like this cyclicity. We cut nature up, organize it into concepts, and ascribe significances as we do largely because we're parties to an agreement to organize it in this way. An agreement that holds throughout our speech community and is codified in the patterns of our language. The agreement is, of course, an implicit and unstated one, but its terms are completely obligatory. He wrote that in small caps. But its terms are completely obligatory. We cannot talk at all except by subscribing to the organization and classification of data which the agreement decrees. That's neat. Our language actually shackles us into thinking in a certain way that people speaking some other language don't. 
And he got almost mystical at times, which really can be quite seductive in explaining how this would work. Here's one more passage of his where he gets down to Hopi specifically. It might be said that the linguistic background of Hopi thought equips it to recognize naturally that force manifests not as motion or velocity, but as cumulation or acceleration. Our linguistic background tends to hinder us in this same recognition. For having legitimately conceived force to be that which produces change, we then think of change by our linguistic metaphorical analog, motion, instead of by a pure motionless changingness concept, i.e., accumulation or acceleration. Now, you know, as it turns out, later research showed that Hopi does mark tense, just like any European language does. And there are various reasons to suppose that Worf's version of this, as interesting as it is, as arresting as it is, doesn't quite hold up in terms of how people actually experience life in different languages. Nevertheless, I would have assumed what Worf did if I only knew as much about languages beyond certain tried and true ones, such as European ones, that people knew back then. If I were only familiar with only a few languages, all this would make perfect sense. But in general, we're talking about something where the truth, as so often, is somewhere in between. So I'll start out by saying that it has been shown beyond any shadow of a doubt that your language does influence your thought to an extent. And actually, my favorite example of this is that it's been shown in ingenious work, for example, by Lara Barditsky, who is a major booster of, expert on the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and the idea that it influences thought these days. But Lara Barditsky, Lauren Schmidt, and Webb Phillips, they discovered in some research that when somebody speaks a language that divides things arbitrarily into genders, that sort of thing that is so scary for us learning so many European languages from English. So, for example, if you speak a language where a table is female, so la tabla in French or la mesa in Spanish, that if you're asked what kind of voice that object would have if it were a cartoon character, if you speak one of those languages, much too much for it to be an accident, you say that that object would have a voice that would correspond to its gender. So, for example, if you asked me how a table would talk for some reason, if I had to answer that question, I must admit that I would imagine that the table would talk kind of like me. But if you ask a French or a Spanish speaker how a table would talk, they're much more likely to suppose that the table would have a high voice, i.e., if we may, a female kind of voice. And that could only be, since it certainly isn't that there's something about French or Spanish-speaking culture that would feminize a table, that it's the language, that the language has the table as belonging to the feminine class of nouns. So that means that your language, something as innocent-seeming as those arbitrary genders, can influence your thought to that extent. And that's been shown for many languages in many ways. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Russian 
is a language that has what seems like an innocent difference from English, which is that there are two words for blue, one of them lighter, one of them darker. There is no one word for blue. So if you speak Russian, then you think of the color of blue in, say, the American flag as a different color from the color of a robin's egg. They have different names. Now, you might think that that wouldn't really matter at all in terms of perception, but it turns out that if you show native Russian speakers various gradations of blue shading from dark to light blue, that they are quicker to distinguish when dark becomes light in the gradation than English speakers. And once again, there's nothing about Russian culture that would make you more sensitive to gradations of the color blue. It must be because the language actually gives labels to different grades of blue. That research is, again, Lara Baroditsky. So language does influence thought to an extent. But the question is, how much? Does language create what we would call a different world view in people? More specifically, does how your language divides up aspects of the world, such as past tense or gradations of blue, does it mean that you have what we would call a different way of perceiving the world? And, you know, you want that to be true. And if you see a rival, I would venture to say that there's something appealing about Amy Adams, she's acquired a certain status. There's something very right about her. And so if she learns it or she says it, then you feel like it must kind of be true because she is Amy Adams. And there's something about Amy's in general. The actress Amy Ryan has that same sort of status. If she's doing it, you love the character no matter what the character is doing. You feel like you could have a beer with Amy Ryan or Amy Heckerling. You know, she directs the right movies. Everybody loves Fast Times at Ridgemont High, if you saw it. Everybody thinks of Clueless as godly. Amy Lowell, the poet. If you read her poetry, you just might like it. And if you read about her, you think she's really cool. There's something about Amy's. I had a huge crush on an Amy when I was in grad school. Everybody loves Amy's. once in love with Amy. Always in love. This film, this wonderful in itself arrival film, probably shouldn't make us think that learning a language is going to give us a worldview. Because if we think of these things as worldviews, if we think of French people thinking of objects walking around as gendered, if we think of Russians as seeing the sky differently than the rest of us do, the problem with that is that just as often the worldview that you might read from a language is one that we wouldn't really want. Mandarin Chinese is a language that is vastly different from what the Westerner might think of a language as being. You can just hear it because we're not used to languages with tones. But when you even know what the language is saying from word to word, it's a very, very difficult business. So, for example, here is a Mandarin sentence. This is the way you say in Mandarin. Samia was saying that her stomach hurt, and so we advised her to go see a doctor right away. Here it is in Mandarin. We're talking about real people speaking real languages. Here it is, idiomatically spoken at speed. Now, unless we are Chinese, that's opaque to us, but I want us to really get down to what the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is telling us. And so let's break this sentence down. We're going to hear this part. 
Samia say her belly hurts. So we advise her. Right away, go see doctor. So, the Mandarin sentence, word for word, is Samia say her belly hurts, so we advise her right away, go see doctor. Now, what's interesting about that is that there are no articles in Mandarin Chinese. No the, no uh. And Yisheng, doctor, doesn't mean a doctor. It just means doctor. And also, Samia say her belly hurts, so we advise her right away, go see doctor. But that's what somebody would give for Samia was saying that her stomach hurt, and so we advised her to go see a doctor right away. You don't have to mark the past in Mandarin Chinese the way you do in the typical European language. And what's often thought of as the past marker is really something else. So here, not only is there no advised, but Samia was saying, as opposed to Samia said, that's all left to context in Mandarin Chinese. Here's another example. You ask how to say, we'd like to have gone on vacation, but we didn't have enough money. Here's that sentence in running Mandarin. So, that is, we want go vacation. But our money, not enough. We'd like to have gone on vacation, but we didn't have enough money. We want go vacation, but our money, not enough. That's all you need. Notice the we'd like to have. That hypotheticality, that counterfactual aspect, is something that you just leave to chance in running Mandarin Chinese. It's quite clear. It's not that people can't perceive it. However, you don't have to indicate that. In general, although Mandarin Chinese is as massively complex as any language is, and I'm not talking about the writing, I'm talking about the language itself, it leaves a lot more to context than the typical Indo-European language does. And that's just the way it is. Now, the problem with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is that if we take it where we enjoy it going when it comes to female tables and the Russian blues, then with Mandarin Chinese, we have to think that somehow they have less nuanced thought than we do because so often the hypothetical is left to context because there are no articles to render those sorts of very fine specifications because you don't have to indicate the past. Now, obviously, that is not true. I think there's all evidence that to be a Mandarin Chinese speaker is most certainly not to be ever so slightly dim. But if we understand that, then we realize that Mandarin Chinese cannot be giving its speakers what we would call a worldview. By the way, those sentences were not read by me, in case you couldn't tell. Those were from the Glossica set for learning Mandarin Chinese. Glossica is a wonderful new self-teaching tool for languages that I highly recommend. In any case, let's take some Australian languages where they have this really cool feature, which is that there can be just one word that means eat, drink, and smoke. All those things are just one word. Maybe you could call that word meaning to ingest, although it's kind of a stretch for smoking a cigarette, but that's just the way those languages go. Just in itself, you think, oh, wow, what an interesting difference. But if we're going to be Worfian about it, then aren't we implying that there's a certain crudity, that these people couldn't be gourmands, and so you're chewing on some deer meat or you're inhaling some tobacco, and oh, well, what the hell, it's just the same thing. Obviously, that's not the way these people think, but that's where Worfianism in its pure and what you might call more fun sense would take you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we have to be careful. And even the messenger can give you a sense of how difficult this whole idea can be. So it's one thing if lovely, goodly, deeply Amy Adams's character says it. But what about if somebody says something like, quote, differences of language inevitably imply differing outlooks on the world, unquote. And it's an ultra-nationalist, xenophobic, openly anti-Semitic historian in the late 19th century, such as Heinrich von Treitschke. Well, if he says differences of language inevitably imply differing outlooks on the world, then it kind of smells a little off. But then again, really, he's just saying the same thing, which in nicer terms was said by Benjamin Lee Worf some decades later, all of which is to say that the truth about this language and thought hypothesis is there, but we don't want to take it too far because we end up drawing some conclusions that we wouldn't want to draw. And finally, for example, worldview language. Well, what is English's worldview? If you speak English, what are the structures and the aspects of vocabulary of this language showing in terms of a worldview? After all, who speaks English? I try to Somebody else who did was um, William Jennings Bryan. Let's hear a little bit of him speaking. It's 1896, and here he's saying things. He actually recorded this a little later, but still. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Mary Tyler Moore also speaks English. Why don't we actually dredge up the clip of them talking about Chinese food on the show that I used on the Backshift episode. Here they are talking. Here's Mary Valerie Harper there speaking themselves some English. Chinese food. Uh, guess what we have in here? Yeah, Chinese Ch- food. Right. We heard you. Uh, listen, Rhoda, when you get upstairs, would you call my father and see if he can come over and sure. let us in? Well, come on up with us and we'll all have Chinese food. Yeah. Why are you so excited about Chinese food? Well, you never had it before. <laughs> Can you believe this? A man who has never had Chinese food in his whole life? Listen, Rod, I owe you a lot. You're opening up a whole new world for me. Or, you know, Sting, the police. They seem to be speaking English to me. You know how there will be an album and your favorite song on it will be some B-side that nobody else cares about? At least that was often my experience. For me, on Synchronicity, that was Miss Gradenko. I always liked that song. One of the highlights of my college years, apart from learning about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, was at one party I somehow got the DJ to play Miss Gradenko, and I danced to it briefly with a person. I enjoyed that. Anyway, here's Miss Gradenko. It's in English. Dave Chappelle speaks English. 
Remember that commercial for Sunny Delight when all the kids run in from outside playing? They all run to the fridge. <sighs> all right. I got some purple stuff, some Sunny D. As soon as you say Sunny D, all the kids go, yeah! Watch the black kid in the back. If you ever see that commercial again, look at that black kid. He'd be like, I want that purple stuff. <laughs> I, that's drink, man. That is drink. Jawaharlal Nehru spoke English. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. He was Indian. He was speaking English. Now, what is the worldview from the English that all of those people spoke? We can't help thinking that to the extent that these various people had worldviews, it had more to do with culture, their different cultures in many ways, than it would have to do with the English language. So culture is, in the views of many, I'm using many as a stand-in for, (laughs) frankly, me, the major determinant, not the language you speak. Amy Adams would have had to become one of those aliens and live among them to be able to think the way they did. Just mastering their language was not going to give her a whole new way of thinking. Here is, is an analogy. Something about the Wizard of Oz that you might not think about. Near the end when Dorothy is saying goodbye to the Scarecrow and the Tin Woodsman and the Cowardly Lion, at one point she says something to the Scarecrow that we're so used to hearing and it It's getting weepy at that point, but it actually is rather unmotivated in itself. Here it goes. I think I'll miss you most of all. Wait, why is she going to miss the scarecrow most of all? I mean, in terms of the movie, if anything, it's Bert Lars' cowardly lion that steals it, and he's the one who seems to need the most love. And then there's the Tin Woodsman with that pleasingly blankish, wide-eyed performance that Jack Haley gives. And then the Scarecrow, well, what's so special about him? Just because he did a dance? Actually, that is a remnant that was left in from an earlier draft of the script, where in the earlier black and white scenes, there was a little hint of a romantic plot between Dorothy and the farmhand that the Scarecrow corresponded to, Hunk. And so, That got left in, and it it sounds nice, but it doesn't technically make sense. But what that teaches us is that the scarecrow just having a brain handed to him was a fantasy. The reality in the black and white part, as originally written, was more mundane. Hunk was thinking of going to agricultural college and bettering himself, so to speak. But language in terms of all of life is like the black and white part of The Wizard of Oz. The language itself only corresponds to a certain fraction of the reality. Black and white is an approximation of the reality of color. Now, I'm using that example because I think it can seem as if if an individual language is only conveying an approximation, a subtraction of reality, then it's mundane. It's like going to ag school instead of being given a brain in color. But that's not actually true. We don't need to decide that the one sliver of reality that each language conveys is somehow romantically interesting in itself, that it's giving us this particular exalted set of glasses on the world. Because the truth is, all evidence is, that even though each language only concentrates on a subset of reality, we all basically process 
the same reality. So we can cherish our individual languages for certain psychological blips of higher awareness that they might give. But then on the other hand, we can think of it as all of us having the same perceptual home overall. There's our local home, and then there's the world home. And as you can tell, what I'm trying to go for is a way of making an analogy with the message of the Wizard of Oz, which is that Dorothy will tell us. There's no place like home. Tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening and see you back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.